Would you join with me in your copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of Matthew? In Matthew chapter 27 is our text this morning. In Matthew 27, the sermon title this morning is Silent Substitution. Silent Substitution. Fitting, very fitting as we move into this passage, as we consider the refuge of our weary soul this morning, as we look upon this one who was weary for us. We need to be reminded this morning, and Matthew is bringing this to our attention as he carefully lays out these series of events of the final days of Jesus' life here on earth. Matthew lays out for us the majestic suffering of our substitute. Do you know that you need a substitute? You need a substitute. You are not worthy to stand before our holy God. Robed in his majesty, but robed in perfection. And it is God's perfection and our utter depravity that is our utter sinfulness, our utter wickedness, that is the great gap between us and God. We need someone to be our substitute. And Matthew is building the case through his good news writing here. And he has been leading into this silent part of Christ's suffering. And as I was working through this passage this week, and over really the past couple of weeks, I really wanted to sit in this passage and understand why was Jesus quiet? Why was Jesus silent? If you want a picture of what the church looks like before the world, this passage here where Jesus stands before Pilate is like what we look like in front of the world. Let's see if you can catch what I mean. Looking in Matthew 27, we'll begin in our text in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testified against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release the crowd, any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two of you do do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be upon us and on our children. 
Then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, to lay your Son barren before us in such a shameful way. To lay him out to be subject to our wrath and then to place upon him your infinite fury. Can our eyes look upon your holy words this morning if the Spirit does not purify them? Can our ears hear such good news if the Spirit doesn't fill our hearts? Father, we pray. In Spirit, we pray that you would take the Word of God and bring it to meaning, bring it to belief, bring it even to saving faith, maybe for some this morning. Father, do everything you desire to do with your Word. We pray and we commit this morning anew that whatever you say, then we will hear and obey. Father, do your work as you love your church this morning and as you love the lost. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want a picture of what Christians or really the church looks like before the world, consider this and think about this even this week. This is what you and I look like before the world. The world looks upon us as believers, as Christians, and they wonder. They're pragmatic in how they deal with us. They're self-preserving in how they respond to our appeals and invitation and proclamations of truth. They reassure and reaffirm themselves that they know truth and they reason in themselves any way not to deal with truth when it's in front of them, but, but even more so, they, they don't know what to do with someone who looks like Jesus Christ. And I pray, by the way, that all of us who are believers here today, that we are, that we are like that. That we are like Christ unto the world. As the world examines Christ, may they even examine our lives and may they see who he is and learn more of who he is and ask the questions like Pilate was asking. Pontius Pilate really is a picture of worldly power. He is competent. He has uh, ascended the ranks of leadership. Matter of fact, he's directly accountable to Tiberius, who is the Caesar, who is the emperor of the Roman Empire, it is Pontius Pilate, then Tiberius. Yes, there's other kings, but the way this was structured, he had ascended a ladder by great um, capabilities and great competency. He was calculating, he was always thinking and scheming like any really authority figure would, but especially like a politician, calculating. And he was self-preserving, which we tend to see as a common theme among those who are in power, especially in politics, self-preserving. But for all of Pilate's shrewdness, 
His life and his interaction here demonstrates what Martin Luther wrote in his song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let good and kindred go. Let this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. Jesus, the king of the universe, was standing before an earthly ruler. Jesus needed no permission Needed no affirmation, no confirmation. And here he stands, this word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. Remember, as we had been at least introducing this idea, as Jesus has been going through the trials, Jesus has now arrived at the final of what we kind of frame as about five trials. He has stood before the religious leaders and he stood before Pilate and then Herod and then now he's back with Pilate and he's about ready to be crucified. But when Jesus first stood before Caiaphas and the religious leaders, Jesus would not answer for them a question. He would not speak to them very much. We'll be looking at another passage of scripture in John 18 in a moment where we do find some interaction. But generally what we're pointing and Matthew is pointing to here in at least his his succinct editing of this narrative of Christ's suffering is Matthew is pointing us to the fact that Jesus is, a, is silent in his suffering. And Jesus is choosing to remain silent because, as we had mentioned before, Jesus could, could call upon any number of witnesses, remember, to testify of his, of his identity, even of his cause, of his kingdom. He could call upon the myriads of the lepers who he had cleansed. He could call upon the leaping lame. He could call upon the the seeing blind and the ones who were once possessed with demons, could he not? He could even call upon the demons themselves to arrive and testify that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. He could call upon his Father to speak from, from the clouds of heaven like at the Jordan River when John the Baptist baptized him and God spoke with thunderous voice and said, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Could He not have called a thousand angels to stand there and testify that they knew this One who they had been bowing before? Jesus could have called any number of witnesses. But Jesus remains silent because He's laying down His life. And God would foretell that this would, ha- would be how Jesus would suffer. And silence, by the way, is some of his suffering. In Isaiah 53, 7, Isaiah says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So when Pilate asked Jesus if he had heard these accusations and heard the crowd, you better believe that Jesus had heard them. Oh, he knew the heart of every single mocker and scoffer in that that, uh, praetorium there that day. He knew the heart more than any of them even knew their own hearts. Oh, he heard every single accusation and knew every single part of slander. He knew. They mocked. And he remained silent. And this is the juxtaposition of the sounds that Matthew is bringing here in the narrative. Who is making all the commotion? 
And who is remaining silent? They mocked, and he remained silent. When Pilate asked if he was the king of the Jews, Jesus said, you have said so. Look down at your Bibles with me, please. And verse number 11, you have said so. And Jesus was not saying no, and he was not saying yes. He was in effect saying, you already know that that's what the accusation is. You already know that that's the title. It's a kind of response that's meant to evoke the thinking that he is the king, but not in the same sense that Pilate would be thinking of it. Jesus had used this sort of answer three different times when uh, he would respond with affirming what someone's already saying. Think about it back in, in just a chapter previous when Judas was around, with Judas and the disciples around the table and they were observing the Last Supper and the Passover meal. And Jesus said, in, in a moment, one of you is going to be betraying me. And one by one, every single one, Philip and Andrew and James and Peter, am, am I the one? Am I the one? But remember that Matthew records that Judas kind of separates out his question maybe a moment or two later, and he says, is it I? And Jesus says, you have said so. The same answer also came just really moments, just a couple hours later when Caiaphas was asking if Jesus was the claiming, the messianic title, the, the Christ. In Matthew twenty six sixty four, Caiaphas asks him this question, and Jesus says, you have said so. So now again, Pilate asks if he is the king of the Jews, and, and Jesus is in effect saying, you are saying this, not me. The, really, the idea is, do you, do you say so? The idea is, who do you believe that I am? The question was really stirring on the heart of Pilate because Jesus didn't look like much of a king. Now, remember, Herod had sent him back with wearing a robe meant to mock him. But really, in the weakness of his state and his countenance, and where were all of his followers? Where was his movement? He didn't look like much of a king, so Pilate was asking, was he really a king? He didn't look royal. He also had probably had heard some little pieces of information throughout the week, even as Jesus had entered with great commotion then on the triumphal entry as he entered into the gates of Jerusalem. Probably Pilate had heard about all of this going on as he was in charge of making sure everything was going to be okay throughout this week as probably a million uh, faithful Jews would ascend upon the Mount of Jerusalem there. But he didn't look very royal. But he also knew that Jesus had not come from any sort of dynasty. He had come from Nazareth, Galilee. He didn't come from a family. He didn't come from wealth. He didn't seem, Jesus even didn't seem to be pretentious in this interaction. And look with me over then in John 18 and, and follow along as John records a little bit more of the narrative, not in contradiction to Jesus keeping his mouth closed, but just as a further part of the narrative. In, in John 18, and we'll begin in verse number 26. I'm sorry, 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, that is, Pilate. It was early morning, by the way, probably around 5 a.m. They themselves did not enter the governor's quarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. 
So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to them, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they go on and they say, no, we want we want to release Barabbas. You see, Pilate is he's actually impressed with Jesus here. Jesus seems to be in complete control. And Matthew and John are actually both letting us see this. And Mark and Luke both record this as well. That Jesus' demeanor here is that he is in complete control of the situation. For this purpose he has come into this world. He says, for this purpose I was born. To bear witness of the truth. Jesus appears in some ways to be passive, but he is in complete control. And, and really at this part of Matthew's of Matthew's account, Pilate is at the center of Matthew's story. And Pilate had heard of, a, of this big triumphal entry, as we have seen, and, he's, and he is assessing the envy of the religious leaders. He says, he says that he senses their jealousy of, this, of the following or of the power of the popularity of Jesus. So what would Pilate do now? He knows that Jesus doesn't deserve to die. He has examined him and found him to be guiltless and to be innocent, at least of the uh, claims and the charges that the religious leaders are bringing to him. But he also doesn't want to make the crowd upset. He doesn't want to cause a riot, Matthew indicates. And he doesn't want to create another incident. You see, Pilate was walking a little bit on thin ice with Tiberius. He had three other instances in his uh, recent history of just probably about six years leading into this occasion here of a failed leadership. We won't go into all of them, but, but uh, he had made some big mistakes. When he was appointed governor, he rode into Jerusalem, and along with his soldiers, he carried with him some engraved, molded images of Caesar into Jerusalem. This was deeply offensive to, uh, to the people of Jerusalem, to the citizens there. They did not believe in bowing down to graven images and, and really upholding these type of idolistic um, images. And so it actually caused him a great bout of commotion. And the Jews actually, in this momentous and this 
festive occasion of receiving a new governor into their territory actually formed this this revolt and this riot and there was bloodshed and he got a little bit of a, a slap on the wrist from Tiberius. Another instance was when, earlier than this, when he wanted to build an aqueduct into Jerusalem and to provide a better water supply, a more faithful water supply. But instead of just using the taxes, he actually broke into the temple and, and raided the temple of its own coffers and used the temple money for the building of the aqueduct that was not received well. Then the third instance, probably likely just, just not too long before this, but there was um, a time when, when Pilate decided that he was going to build his, his residence and his, build his palace there in the city of Jerusalem. And uh, when he uh, put up some of the, again, some of the emblems of the Roman Empire, the shields and some of the fixtures, Oh, the people revolted against that. Some of the fixtures said Tiberius the emperor on it. And it just seemed more ostentatious than they were willing to put up with. And, and actually, um, um, Caesar had heard about it and had told him, Tiberius Caesar had told him to um, remove these symbols so as to keep the peace. Because he couldn't afford another riot. But here as Jesus stands before Pilate were reminded that, that all of the world stands guilty before the pure Son of God. You see, Judas, as we had heard last week by the faithful preaching of the passage before in Pastor Golden, Judas couldn't pay enough to release himself from his guilt. He had sought to pay by even serving his own life, taking his own life. Judas couldn't pay enough to rid himself of his guilt. Pilate in this passage, he can't wash himself clean from his own guilt. The priests don't even believe in the existence of their own guilt. And the crowds can't shout loud enough to claim their own guilt. As Pilate stands before Jesus here, we're reminded that, that we are Pilate, examining truth. And the world is Pilate, looking upon the very revelation the gracious revelation of God into this world, the good news. We are Pilate. Yes, the blood of these, uh, the blood of Jesus Christ will be upon their heads. And if we can turn that phrase just a little bit, praise God that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed. This morning we're going to be looking at two truths as we understand this passage, and we're actually going to be visiting this passage several times in the next several weeks. And number one, we want to see what we want most and what we need most are often in conflict. What we want most and what we need most are often in conflict. Our strongest desires can contradict our deepest needs. So what in this passage is we put ourselves in Pilate's Boots. What were some of his strongest desires that are revealed to us in this passage? How are we like Pilate? Well, in many ways, but one of them that at least we can see readily here is that Pilate craved power. Pilate craved power. Pilate was enslaved to the idea of control. Now, I know that I'm not talking to anybody here this morning who loves control. I know that none of you 
are frustrated when things are outside of your control. So this message is for, this part of the message is for someone else. But you're looking at someone who loves control, who loves to feel like I'm in control. And this, if this truth sort of resonates or piques your interest, this is, is appearing into our own hearts, even into Pilate's heart here. But he was enslaved to the idea of control. And really, Pilate would do anything for control. And really, that's an understatement. But he would do anything for control, even if it meant killing God. Even if it means condemning Jesus, who he had found to be an innocent man, to death. But really, it's not only him that's craving control, isn't it also the religious leaders who think of themselves better than God, who desire control? And isn't it also then the crowds who are saying, give us control over Jesus? You see, false gods love Power. Really, power is a false god. False gods love power, and what's interesting is that false gods like power, they always enslave. They offer the promise of peace and of hope, even of salvation. And for this, Pilate was craving to maintain power. He was, he was manipulating, he was scheming, he was vacillating, he was trying to figure out how is he going to maintain power. He already knew that he was in a precarious situation with, with the powers that be, and he wanted to maintain control. So what would it be? What would it cost to remain in control? It would cost the facade and the, the fleetingness of the idea of temporary control. But at the end of the day, the fact is that our power cannot save us, listen, from our power. Our power is a false savior. Your idea, our idea of, of power, of control, is, is really a mirage. I know that we're preaching in post-COVID time, but perhaps this rings back some of the lessons that we were learning throughout our time in, in COVID, where we were just yanked about. Right? Remember about the rules and our own health and our vulnerability and our social plans and our and legitimate goals. Everything was just all over the place. And we thought that we had been in control before COVID and COVID just reminds us we, we aren't in control. Control is a false God. And the more tightly we hold to our power, the less power we actually have. Pilate's power became his false savior. And the fact is that false saviors have a way of being noisy. False saviors love to position themselves in our own thinking, let alone in the voice of others and, and um, in our consciences. False saviors whisper in our ears, but they shout in our, con- in our consciences. False saviors blare on our screens in front of us. But today, Matthew wants us to behold an entirely different Savior. A different Savior than anything we are or behold in this world's gallery of false Saviors. There's just one. There's just one true Savior and Matthew wants us to see Him. And He's not whispering He's not shouting. 
And he's not blaring. Well, what is he doing? He's silent. Matthew wants us to behold the one that we need. And he must be silent at this time. You see, God didn't need to give an explanation of himself. Romans 11 reminded, in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Who demands God to speak? Why was Jesus silent? Initially, we see that Jesus is silent because Jesus did not love his life. He did not love his mortality. In Philippians chapter 2, he didn't even love his own glory and majesty. He laid it aside, not thinking it's something to remain to be held on to, but laid aside his crown and his robes and descended into this world, becoming in fashion like a man and even an obedient servant all the way to death. Jesus did not love his life. He did not believe his life something to be spared. Jesus dies so you live. Jesus lives, you die. So initially we know that Jesus is silent because he's willing to die. He does not love his life. Also we know that he did not lose control of his tongue. When you suffer, do you lose control of your tongue? But Jesus is silent. He was remaining in complete control over his tongue. James says, if you bridle the tongue, you bridle your whole life. And thirdly, also, because Jesus did not argue that they were wrong, he knew that they were rejecting him. What you and I need is a silent Savior. What we need is a silent Savior. There will be a time when He speaks. But we need a silent Savior. You say, I want, I want a God who's going to stand up for me. I want a God who's going to speak and, and, and put at bay the mouths that ridicule and that blaspheme and that even cause me agony. No, but at this time, it must needs be that Jesus is silent. And we're going to be looking at four different reasons why. Number one, Jesus' silence is patience. That's what it is. It's patience as God lays upon Jesus' shoulders the sorrows and the griefs of us all. And this is what preceded Isaiah 53, 7, that he would be led like a lamb to the slaughter without opening his mouth. Surely he has borne our griefs and he carried our sorrows. And here in this silence, Jesus is beginning to bear out the griefs and sorrows of our sins. This isn't just talking about our earthly agonies of losses of loved ones. It includes that, but it is way beyond that. It is even the, the sorrow of our sorrow of our sorriness, of our pitiful souls. The sorrow and anguish that our sin causes us and even infects others with. 
Oh, Jesus here is silent as being laid upon him. He is patient to receive. Jesus is patient to receive the scourging that you and I should receive. Remember, the theme this morning is substitute. And if this morning you, you need to look at this and see Jesus is willing to be your substitute. He's willing to take your place so that God would punish Him instead of you. And when you place your faith in Jesus being your substitution, then you receive from Him. He receives from you the penalty of death and you receive from Him the gift of eternal life. And He is patient. Jesus was shorn like a sheep. He was shorn of His honor, of His dignity, of His name, and eventually of His life itself. They literally stripped Jesus of His clothing and publicized His shame and humiliated Him. And then they stripped Him of His flesh. The silence is patience. As God puts upon him our sorrows and griefs. But secondly, his silence is his pardon. Jesus' silence is his pardon as he does not open his mouth to accuse, but remains silent to forgive. Do you know that Jesus could have just gone on to an impromptu sermon preaching to Pilate all the sins of his life and called upon every person in the crowd by person by person, accusing them of every sin they'd ever committed from the time they were born. Jesus could have been the just accuser. He doesn't open his mouth to accuse, but he's there to pardon. Jesus doesn't bring an accusation to the Father. Jesus doesn't say to the Father in the moments of of this scourging and of this trial, Father, you hear the accusations. You know they're not true. I call upon you to, to destroy these people. He doesn't bring his lament to the Father. He doesn't bring his accusation to, to an accusation to Herod, to Pilate, to, to Pompus Caiaphas. Jesus is God and he is holy. And oh, how the sin of all of this must have rubbed against the grain of his very nature of truth of purity and holiness. Jesus, upon His shoulders is laid our sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And in this time, Jesus is weighing the sin. And thirdly, His silence And I love this. His silence is his power restraining his own omnipotence. Perfect love restraining just wrath. How much does it take for you to not lash out when someone is hurting you? But here we have a sinless and holy God 
who is willing and in times past has flooded this world with the rage and fury that he has towards sinners and sin. And now, greater than the flood itself, he will take the sins of this world and place them on the back of his sinless son. And with the rage of hell, of eternal damnation, of eternal condemnation, God will pour his fury upon himself and yet utter not a word. Then fourthly, his silence is his submission. As he was wholly giving of himself to the Father's will, not a word of regret or change of mind all the way until he dies. An ancient writer writes what it would be like for sheep when they would come to be shorn. He says, Woolly rams laden with thick fleeces put themselves into his hands, the shepherds, to have their wool shorn. Being thus accustomed to pay their yearly tribute to man, their king by nature. The sheep stands in a silent, inclining posture, unconstrained under the hand of the shearer. These things may appear strange to those who do not know the docility of the sheep, but they are true. And do you know why Jesus was willing to be like a lamb led to the slaughter? Because he knew what it was like to have the hand of God upon him. Just like a sheep who time after time, season after season, comes voluntarily and and lays down or comes into the pen to be shorn and now no longer kicks, no longer bucks, but is submissive to the hand of the shepherd, so too Jesus was in such unity and community with the Father in fellowship, in unbroken unity with the Father. He knew what it was like to submit to the Father's will. He had been doing it all along. For recall the submission of our great God and Savior when he came into Bethlehem and was robed in the flesh of a helpless babe and worshipped by shepherds, not kings. Recall the submission of what it was as in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that he learned obedience, that he became, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man, that he succumbed and he endured all of the afflictions of, of humanness. He thirsted and starved and grieved as the second Adam. Recall the moment of great submission when Jesus was in Gethsemane and knew that his hour was, had come and he pleaded unto the Father that there would be any other way and yet surrendered unto the wisdom of the counsel of God as he had done before the foundation of the world and said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done and drank the cup. And here, as the Father's hand is placed upon His Son to shear Him like a lamb, Jesus continues in silent submission. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And that's a terrifying thing. 
It's one thing to be oppressed and to receive stripes. It's more to be afflicted and to know then that there's an end. But it's entirely something different when you know that your afflictions and that your scourgings are leading to a slaughter. Jesus knew it. And for him there would be no relief all the way to death. He was a sheep sheared like sheep for its shears. No one has ever been sheared of everything glorious and pleasant and blissful and beautiful like Jesus has. No one. And Jesus was sheared of every part of his majesty and every part of his dignity. But listen, he was sheared of everything but one thing. Love. And Jesus remains silent because he loves you and I. His silence is substitution. He's willing to be blamed for my sin. What Jesus could have said could have been more than what's recorded. What an awful bride you are to die for. You are utterly unworthy of my holy blood. You are a thankless, rebellious people who persist in sin, even after repentance. I'm done, Jesus could have said. There's a song that was recently written, and uh, it's called um, He Was Wounded. And it reads like this, which I bring to point that, that this silence substitution is something that songwriters include. This silence substitution, this silent submission is part of the gospel story. It's part of the unfolding of his, of his redemption for us, for you and I. It's something that a, a gospel-minded theologian includes in his in his narrative of those events leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, and it's well put in this song. Though distressed by men oppressed, he uttered ne'er a mild protest. Like a lamb, the great I am said not to those he might have damned. Innocent, his soul was rent, eternal wrath on him was spent. In a cave, a borrowed grave, he lay for those he came to save. Jesus' actions here are unique. And this is not an example for us as Christians to say, well, when I'm, you know, when I'm accused of things, I shouldn't give a defense. That's not what this passage is meant to do. It's not meant to say, we like sheep ought to be led to the slaughter. And not not to give any sort of defense when we're accused of things. That's not what this passage is. If this passage is an example to you, you've missed the whole point. You've missed the infinite depths of the gospel in this passage. Jesus' actions here are unique because he's unique. Jesus' silence is reflective of his unfaltering commitment and his lavish love for you and I. 
Jesus was led to the slaughter because he loves the Father and he loves us. He's silent because he takes the silence for us. In Revelation 20, the the revelator says that he saw the dead, both small and great, standing before the great white throne and the books were opened and whosoever book was not found in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire to suffer eternal punishment forever. The Bible indicates that there's coming a day when everybody will stand before the throne of God and we will have to give an account for our life. Jesus has made a way for those who would want a defense, if you will, want a reason why God should allow blessing and eternal life to be theirs as an inheritance. God has provided a way through Jesus Christ. And instead, if you place your faith in my grace through Jesus Christ, if you will depend upon Him to be your Savior, that He died instead of you for your sins, if you will place all of your sin and turn away from your sin by faith, turn towards me to have a reconciled relationship with me, your Creator and your God, and now be your Savior, then I will allow you to enter into eternal bliss with me. But if your reason why you must enter heaven is any other reason, then Jesus' blood paid it all, then you do not belong in heaven. And on that day, those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior will remain silent. There will be silence in the courtroom. And there's coming a day, and that's a fearful day, when you and I stand before the Lord. And that conversation is had. And for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, He takes our silence on that day, right here, and pays for it. On the great judgment day, we would have nothing to say when we could receive the judgment of God. Those who will receive the judgment of God on that day will have nothing to say in their own defense. Jesus took that silence for us. Now, believing friend this morning, as you hear the retelling of part of the gospel story here, this passage ought to counsel your heart against the accusations that the evil one slings into your heart, the tenderness of your conscience. As you think, I'm unworthy, I have no excuse, you're right. But Jesus bore out the silence. He suffered because you have all the excuses in the world. He suffered in your place and so the assurance of our acceptance before God here is sealed by the silent substitution of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's sealed. Jesus was calculating. He was, he was holding on to. He was absorbing our defense for our sin. And maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
this morning as you consider what Matthew and what the Word of God has presented to you. You see, this Jesus loves you so much that instead of accusing you, he was willing to bear up and to be accounted as you before God so that you could look like him before God. Will you place your faith in Jesus Christ? It's amazing news, and it seems so simple. That's why they call it good news. Let's pray together.